We're in Matthew chapter uh, 26, and I got to the end of chapter 26 last week. And I got to verse 75, and if I remember it, I told you something that I, I made a statement. I said, no, I'm going to stop there because there's more things I want to say about verse 75. See, we've come to the moment in time where Peter has now um, denied Jesus. Jesus prophesied that would take place, and uh, which is amazing. And I explained what the cockcrow, two potential meanings of that last week. So you can go back and watch that later. Um, but there's something I want to show you. I want to read verse 75 of Matthew 26. Then I want to take you on a little uh, scriptural journey just to talk about it a little more and to think more about Peter and uh, how Jesus interacts with him and how he interacts with us to help you and I in our faith. Verse 75 says, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He goes on and weeps bitterly because the rooster has crowed. Just like Jesus said. And Peter had stated, I'll never deny you. He even said, I'll die with you before I deny you. And what happens? He denies him. He's just like you and me. Now, I want you to keep your finger here. And if you have a regular Bible or app, here we go. Turn to John chapter 18. In John chapter 18... <clears throat> Um, oops, I got to go one more book over. John chapter 18. I was there in Luke, and I don't know why I was in Luke, but John 18. Now watch what Jesus says. Um, this is Jesus as he's praying in the garden, and uh, John adds that Jesus said this in verse 9. He said, um, to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So John's writing, stating what Jesus said. Jesus said to the Father, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. But wait a minute now. Let's think because in Matthew 26, uh, the writer, Matthew, it's interesting because he's giving you a contrast there between Judas and Peter. It says that Jesus lost not one. Well, now wait a minute. He had 12 disciples, and he did lose one. He lost Judas. So what's up with that? Well, let me try to explain it. <clears throat> By Jesus' own words, I must draw a simple conclusion. That Judas wasn't genuine. Judas really wasn't a follower. Judas was in it for other reasons and other means. <clears throat> he accepts the morsel at the dinner that night. And uh, now Peter, on the other hand, he fails miserably. But, but, there's something different about Peter. Let me, I'm going to take you on a, uh, two thoughts here. But here's one of the things that Jesus said to Peter, because he knew Peter was in a different a different place in his faith. And Peter really did have faith. Turn to Luke, one book back, Luke uh, chapter 22, and watch what Jesus tells Peter. And, and he's telling him, I know you're going to mess up. And I know you're going to, you're, you're, it's going to be bad. But now watch the words. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32, and hopefully this helps you and it helps me. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. We know that's Peter. Change his name to Peter, Jesus did. He says, look, behold, Satan 
has demanded permission to sift you like, like wheat. It means to shake you badly. Now, let me show you. There's a cool statement in here that you better not miss. He says, Satan's asked permission to go after you. You know what that tells me? There's nothing that Satan can do to me unless God the Father has given permission to do. That's interesting because you see the same um, truth in the book of Job, the book on suffering in chapter 1. That Satan doesn't have free reign to do anything. That God still has parameters upon things in this world. But he says, look, Satan's demanded to sift you likely. He's going to shake you up. But verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you. Isn't that great that Jesus prays for us? You know that Hebrews 7 says he's ever interceding for you and I. Jesus never stops praying for you and for me. Oh, I like that. He's the great intercessor. Uh, but I have prayed for you that your faith, keyword, underline it, mark it, circle it, do something with that word, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, look, you're going to mess up. I prayed for you, but I prayed for your faith. Now notice what Jesus says there, or what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, I prayed for your testimony. You keep a good testimony. He doesn't say, oh, I pray that, you know, that you don't start letting out some bad words and stuff. He, he doesn't say, well, I pray, you know, that, you know, when you go back at some old stuff that you once gave up, then you, I, I, he says, I pray for your faith, is what he says. That, that's a big, big deal. <clears throat> Why? Why does he pray for his faith? Because it's our faith that links us to God. Whoa. Jesus prays for the thing in us that links us to him. Oh. And he says, you're going to turn again. You're going to mess it up, but you're going to turn again. And when you do, and when you come back, your job is to strengthen others. I like that a lot. And but in the picture of all of it, this is what's happening when you and I, when a person possibly walks away and gets discouraged or disillusioned or I messed it up too badly, he say, no, don't worry about all the stuff you messed up. I'm praying for your faith. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 75. And uh, <clears throat> let me lay, lay in one more idea about this as a, a comparison between Judas and Peter. Why one was of the faith, remember Jesus lost not one, so he's not counting Peter as uh, Judas as one of the lost. He never was one. And how can I say that? Peter was one, Judas wasn't. Because Judas accepts the morsel, the food, from Jesus at the Last Supper. That means Jesus saying, I'm unconditionally your friend. Judas took it, but he didn't mean it. He didn't mean any of it. He just took the bread. But Peter, different story at that Last Supper. Jesus washes his feet. Peter says, not just my feet, but my whole body as well. He goes, Peter, Peter, Peter. One who is bathed needs only to wash their feet. Now, there's a physical idea of that, and yet he spiritualized it in this way. 
that they walked around and if it was summer they had sandals on and their feet would get dirty even though they might be clean the rest of their body says look the rest of he's clean just wash the dirty part well that's true of our of our salvation and justification in Jesus that we are justified that we're clean we're innocent before God and when we sin just wash the dirty part Lord forgive me for that you don't have to go over all the sins of the last five years or five months. It's under the blood you're justified. Just wash the dirty part. And so that's the big difference between Judas and Peter. And you see the restitution and uh, uh, the recommissioning of Peter where Judas goes down a whole different road. Jesus says, I lost not one. The one that was lost was never one to begin with. Now, verse, or chapter 27 of Matthew. Uh, hopefully you understood what I explained. Hopefully I explained it right. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Now, now stop. We already read last week that they've already said, this man deserves death. Why do they have another meeting? Remember, there are three religious trials they're going through, and then there'll be three civil trials um, that he's going to go through that night. They're the key words of why there's another trial here is found at the very beginning. Now when morning came. Morning, yes. Because now they're going to make it legal. Because the first trial that we read about, which is actually, we read about last week, was actually the second trial. Um, because uh, as you put the Gospels together, you see there's six, but we're only seeing two of the religious trials in Matthew. That, that trial we read about last week was held at night. It was illegal to try a man at night. Now, they've already condemned it to death, but now it's morning. So now they're going to do it legally. Oh, yeah, all of a sudden they get all legal now. They're such hypocrites. And now they're going to say, oh, yeah, we tried them and this and that. What's interesting about the, these, uh, the Sanhedrin, when they come together, you know how they would work? They were supposed to be, it was supposed to be, that the younger members of the Sanhedrin would vote first, guilty, not guilty, so that the older members would not vote first and thus influence the younger members. Now, we highly doubt that they follow that rule right there. They probably just went for it and that was it. Now, verse 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Well, now that's interesting. They condemn him to death, the Jews do, the religious leaders. And now they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate. Now starts these civil trials. But we've got to look at some reasons why this is going on. And there's a few of them, guys, why they're going to Pontius Pilate. Let me start with a basic fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, let me, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Be, now they're taking him to Pontius Pilate. Now Deuteronomy 21. <clears throat> and verse 23 says this, his corpse, this is talking about someone who's committed a sin worthy of death, his corpse shall not hang all night on a, on the tree. Say tree, tree, I heard you. Um, no, I didn't. But you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not, so, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you, as an inheritance. Mm. A person who hangs on a tree, of which Jesus will be hanging 
in a sense, on a tree, it's cursed. See, the prophecy had to be fulfilled. That this Jesus, he would hang on a tree. In Galatians 3, we find curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became a curse for us. So Jesus is now taking the curse upon his body. And he's follow, And the prophetic statements back there following here. The Jews would stone a man to death. They're not going to hang him on a tree. But the Romans will. They'll crucify him, hang him on a tree. And so you see prophecy being fulfilled. And Jesus taking the curse of mankind. You know, one of the, um, oh no, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. I almost said something. Um, and you want to know what it was? Uh, sorry. Uh, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had, he had been condemned. Whoa, now he sees what's going on. Now Judas sees what his actions have caused. He didn't think it through. He felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. You know, there's just some things in life you can't undo, huh? Now, you say, well, he felt remorse, uh, but, he's, but he doesn't repent, really. You know, when he feels remorse, you know, he feels bad. But the New Testament teaches there's a, there's a, a sorrow that leads unto life and sorrow that leads unto salvation is a real repentance. He never reached that point right there. He, he never did. I don't, I don't know if you could say he is regret for being caught or whatever it was, or maybe just regret, but there's no real repentance in his life. And now he'd like to undo what he did, and he comes and he brings, brings the money they gave him, the 30 pieces of silver. He tries to give it back. Now watch what they say. Verse 4, here's what he says. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Stop right there. Innocent blood? What is Judas just saying? Think of what the ramifications of his statement. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. <clears throat> innocent blood? He is saying that, or he's realizing that, I've walked with Jesus for years. I never saw him sin. I never saw him blow up and just get mad to get mad. I never saw him get drunk. I never saw him say a cuss word. I never saw him chase after women. I never saw any of those things. He's an innocent man. He's starting to think now. And now watch what they tell him when he's trying to give the money back and saying, look, I, I, I made a mistake. They say to him, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Huh. What are they just telling him? They're saying, look, we could care less about you and we could care less whether Jesus was innocent or not. That's what they're saying. We could care less about you and we don't give a one rip whether Jesus is innocent or not. We got what we want. You fell into our trap. You did what, you know, you, you went after the money because we know you're money hungry. We caught word about you. And now... You want to change it? Sorry, no way, hombre. Now, verse 5. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. <clears throat> now, he takes the money because he don't want it. It's blood money. He goes to the temple treasury. He throws it inside there. What does he do? He runs off 
and he hangs himself. Well, that's interesting because in Deuteronomy 19, you can go back and read it later, we find that um, when somebody testifies falsely, in other words, lies about someone else, false testimony, that whatever that person was going to be convicted of and say they were or they weren't, now the judgment that person that you're lying about would receive because you lied, it comes back to you. It comes back to you. Now, Jesus is going to be hung on a tree, crucified. What does Judas do? He hangs himself on a tree. The thing that was going to happen to the person he lied about, he goes and he does it to himself. That's interesting, is it not? Now, I want to show you something that just in case, and I, I think I explained this a couple years ago on a Sunday morning, but it says he went away and hanged himself. Turn to Acts to the right, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. You're going to go about three letters to the right. Look at Acts 1.18. It gives a little statement in here that seems contradictory. It's not. Verse 18, Acts 1.18. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. Awesome. No, not awesome. It's talking about Judas. Now, wait a minute here. Now, Matthew says he hung himself. Acts, who's written by Luke, says he burst open and fell headfirst, to the, to the ground, and all of his intestines gushed out. Who, who's telling the truth here? Who's right? Who's wrong? They're both right. Why would I say that? It's really simple. Um, Matthew's a tax collector. He's going to view it through the eyes of a tax collector. Judas hung himself. Luke is a medical doctor. He's going to view it through medical doctor eyes. Judas hung himself, but as the body hangs out there in the hot weather, eventually that body is going to expand and burst. And when it does, everything is going to come flying out. And as his body falls, you know, rots and falls off that rope, because men's upper body is heavier and lower body center of gravity, they'll fall head first, where a woman would not fall that way. They'd fall a little bit different. You don't believe me that bodies can burst just from heat? Go look online and look up where whales that have um, beached themselves and died and watch them explode from the heat. That just happens. That, that happens. And that's what's happening here. So it's not a contradicting statement. It's both. Both are true. They just are explaining it from their particular perspective plus expertise, Dr. Luke, in life. Make sense? Okay, good. Verse 6, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, now they're, they, they know he's throwing the money in the temple treasury. They took the pieces of silver. Here's what they say. It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. What? It's dirty money. 
uh, we, it's not, you know, it's not lawful, it's not right to put dirty money into the temple treasury because it's the price of blood. Wait a minute. Who gave Judas the money? <laughs> they did. They are sitting there in their mm, hypocrisy and they're saying, the money's dirty, but we're not. Really? No, money is amoral. It's not right or wrong. It's how the person uses the money. See, they're trying to state an inanimate object is, the, is, is dirty, when in fact, they are dirty. They're the ones that pay the money. They're the ones that uh, unjustly uh, uh, convicted Jesus of death. They're the ones that brought in lying witnesses. They're the ones that tried to change his words to make it sound like something else. They're the ones that spun it all around. And now they're saying, yeah, we can't touch blood money. How hypocritical that is. It's interesting though, isn't it? <laughs> it's human nature. Um, verse 7. And they conferred together. They go, let's, let's have a little uh, Zoom conference call here. And figure out what we're going to do with this stuff, you know, because we're in the time of Zoom meetings. And, and they conferred together, and with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. <clears throat> now, this is hypocritical too, because they say, let me watch the way I do it. Um, you know, let's buy a potter's field for the sake of people who are strangers in the city who die. And we can get this field for them. It's a holy and righteous act just to help people. They think they're holy by doing that. They're making themselves sound like, oh, we're doing good for people. <laughs> no, they're hypocrites. Now, what's a potter's field? And why is it significant? Well, what's significant about it is when a guy, gal, when they would make pottery back then, let's say that was your business, and you would uh, heat it in the, in, in the fire, and what if it cracked? Well, if it was no good to crack them, if you take it and you take the broken pieces and you would throw them outside your window and there would be a field next door possibly and after months and years of broken pottery, they throw it out there and it would accumulate all over this field next to the house. It's a potter's field. The problem with the potter's field is nothing can grow there. So it's good for nothing. So they say, let's use the money that, we, that was used to pay for Jesus' death, the blood money. Let's buy a potter's field and bury strangers there. Wow. Did you catch what they just did? They used the blood money of Jesus Christ, to, that crucified him, to buy a field to bury dead where, where it's also filled with broken pieces of pottery. Brokenness and death. Isn't that what Jesus came to save and redeem? We were dead to God. We were dead to God. You and I weren't sinners. We were dead to God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says. The prodigal son's father says, my son who is dead is now alive again. But not only did he save us, he's redeemed us and continues to sanctify us and change us. We're the broken pieces of pottery. And he takes us piece by piece and he begins to break, 
pull back and, and, and reform the broken pieces of our lives. And I know some people think I don't have any broken pieces. Okay, whatever. Yes, you do. You're an imperfect person just like I am. And you got broken pieces and broken pieces, and you still got at least about 156,000 broken pieces to go, just like I do, where God wants to heal. So Jesus' blood money buys that. Now let's read on. For this reason, verse 8, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet uh, was fulfilled. Now remember, Matthew's writing to Jews, so he's going to quote Old Testament scripture. Other, other gospels won't do it to the extent he will because he's writing to Jews. He's proving that Jesus is who he is. Uh, spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Now here's the quote from the Old Testament. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now stop, because some of you know your Bible. And you know that he says what was spoken of through Jeremiah, but then he's quoting Zechariah chapter 11. What's up with that, huh? Well, I, the, the, I, the implication, the idea is this. That Matthew, who's writing to Jews, who know their Old Testament pretty well, he's alluding to Jeremiah, though quoting for, from also from Zechariah, to see or to um, challenge the more skilled Old Testament reader to study it. And that makes a lot of sense because there are passages in Jeremiah that allude right to this thing. But he quotes word for word from Zechariah. It's just an interesting thing to study out. Now verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, Governor's Pontius Pilate. Now he's before Pilate. Now it starts these civil trials. Here it comes. And he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you committing acts of treason against Rome? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now we're reading a condensed version because in other gospels you see the full version and we're not going to go. We're going to stay with Matthew's version right here. J just for now. <clears throat> now, Why did they take him to Pilate? Yeah, because Romans crucified people. But there's another reason that we find in other Gospels when Pilate says, take him yourself and judge him according to your own laws. And they would say, we would, but we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And it's, and it's true. You see, because uh, uh, around three years before this, um, Rome stripped the Jews in Israel from carrying out capital punishment. When they did that, these religious leaders ran into the streets and they screamed, God has failed us. Shiloh has not come. What does that mean? Well, they're quoting Genesis 49.7 that the scepter will never depart until Shiloh comes. In other words, the authority will always be there until Shiloh, Shiloh's the Messiah, till he comes. And three years earlier, they, they ran out, God has failed us, Shiloh has not come, and we no longer have this authority anymore. But wait a minute. Shiloh had come. He was standing in their midst three years earlier. Jesus comes on the scene, man. 
and they missed it. Boy, did they miss it. And now they're taken. And so back to the story. They're bringing Jesus, the person they missed, to Pilate because only you can carry out the sentence of death, Pilate. You know we can't do that. You took it away from us. Verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things that we could, you know, it would be so cool to cross out that word, don't, don't do it, and just put lies. Do you hear how many lies they testify against you? But he says things, and that's what he said. Um, and verse 14, And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Let me tell you something about life. Some of you are older, you understand this now. Some of you keep falling into this trap. Quit defending yourself to liars and people who spin the truth and make up things. Just stop it. You're going to waste the rest of your life doing that. The world's filled with liars and people that twist things. And if you defend yourself against a person like that today, you're going to have to defend yourself next week against them and next week after that against them and next because they don't let up because they're immature, they're angry, whatever. But you can grow up now and just shun, done, not going to do that anymore. So Pilate's amazed. Now, we're not amazed because we can read back in time. And we can read to Isaiah chapter 53. Watch, turn to Isaiah 53. Watch back in time. We know the prophetic statement. Jesus is just fulfilling another prophecy. Now watch this, Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says of Jesus, of the Messiah, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth, wow, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So He did not open His mouth. Huh, that's interesting, isn't it? He didn't open His mouth. You know what's interesting to me about this is that they're accusing him, accusing him, and you know, he says, and he doesn't answer. He doesn't say a word. He could have turned them all into statues and, and frogs or like the old Twilight Zone jack-in-the-box. He could have turned them into anything because he's God in the flesh. But he just keeps his mouth shut. Verse 15, Now the, at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. So they have this thing now where they can release a person in place of another person. They can release somebody. Pilate's trying to get out of a jam. That's what he's trying to do. We'll talk more widely about that next week. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Mm, Barabbas. The word notorious means to mark upon. You and I would say it like this. He's a marked man. He's a bad hombre. He's a bad dude. You don't want to let this guy go free. But that's exactly what he's going to do because he's going to try to get out of this thing. So when the people gathered together, verse 17, we're going to end here. Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. Pilate uses interesting terminology. Barabbas, which means 
father's son or son of my father? Or Jesus, who is called Christ. Christ is the anointed one. Why does he say it that way? Well, guess what? We're going to talk about that next week when we get to that moment and we come back to that scripture again and why Pilate is in a no-win situation um, and, and all the religious leaders understand that. But we're going to finish right there and we'll pick it up next week um, in verse 17. Same bat time, same bat channel. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.